Wait a minute, you're supposed to turn it on there, it's on. It's your fault. I'm just a flunky who hangs out around here. Anyway, what I was going to say was when we first converted in, we used the Greek church up in Wichita Falls, and their service was immediately after ours. Uh, so we, we were so excited about becoming Orthodox and converting from the Episcopal Church that this, the parish hall sounded like what you just heard. It was wild. It was almost like a party going on, you know, every Sunday. And the Greeks are in there trying to worship in Eastern Rite. Uh, and every, continuously, someone would come out from their service and go, shh, that didn't stop anything. Uh, so I don't know what happened. We worked it out somehow over the years. Maybe they just got used to praying with all the noise. I don't know. Anyway, this just reminded me it was so wild and so much loud noise. It just reminded me of that event. It brought, brought back a memory. I'm going to pray a different collect today. The one from today is the Feast of Christ the King. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who didst will to restore all things in thy well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that all the kindreds of the earth set free from the calamity of sin may be brought under his most gracious dominion, who with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth God, world without end. Amen. Today I want to talk about Marian, Mariology is biblical? Because that's a question. Uh, and it should be. And remember, there's a difference between Mariology and Mariolatry. Mariolatry is worship of Mary. Mariology is what we say about Mary. So we're not Mariolatrists, or we could be, I suppose. Yeah, but we're, we're, we have a Marian doctrine. Uh, and I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but all doctrines in Orthodoxy go together. They fit and they influence one another, and you can't have one without another. In fact, you can't even be a Christian without having one doctrine affecting another. Most people don't realize that. So in any case, when you walk into an Eastern Rite Church, an Eastern Rite Orthodox Church, you're apt to see a very huge image on the back wall of the Mother of God sitting in a chair or sitting in a sitting posture with her hands out, and in her lap is the Christ child with his hands out. And so the emphasis seems to be on her. And it's easy then to misunderstand and think these people have supplanted Christ with Mary, and they worship Mary. And so immediately they head for the door. <laughs> uh, and that is misunderstood. Now we can answer any objections from tradition, and really we do when we talk about tradition in the past. But the best starting point for this is, believe it or not, Scripture. Uh, since the New Testament, believe it or not, tells us a whole lot about Marian doctrine, about what we say about Mary. And really, it is also a series of statements about ourselves as redeemed human beings. I want you to keep that in mind. Now, when we walk in and we see that image up in the Eastern Rite Church, and we have an icon set aside in Western Rite fashion over here, but we still get the same effect. We're just, our vision is not, it's not, as soon as we walk in, it's not the immediate vision. We have to look to the side a little bit. But understand that when you walk into an Eastern Rite Church and you see that, that image, and sometimes it's called in translation, wider than the heavens. When you see that, 
It is a Marian statement. It is a Christological, it is a Christological statement about Christ and who he is. It's a, Mar it's a Marian statement about her and her place in the drama of salvation. And it's, a, it's an anthropological statement because she reflects all of us. And so when we walk in, we see that we should see us up there. Us. What does that mean? Well, it's soteriological as well. That is salvation because it says God saves us in order to make us be what he wanted us to be in the beginning. Co-creators with him. Co-creators with him. No, we're not coming here to worship ourselves or to worship her, but we are coming in and saying we are participating in that which God initiated on the cross and in the resurrection and ascension. We are participating in it. We're leaving the world and participating in this. In any case, what, is, what does Scripture say about the Blessed Virgin Mary? Well, I'm using several texts here. Let me just put the names of the text down. I won't write out the entire text, so don't have panics. Uh, you can go online, I suppose, if you want to. But uh, Matthew 1, 18 to 23 and I recommend that you read these very carefully. Uh, Luke 1, 26 to 55. Oh. Revelation 12, 1 to 2. John 2, verse 5, and also 19, 25 to 27. And lastly... This is not all, but this is the best one. Psalm 45, or 44 in the Septuagint text. I believe it's 44. Okay, so let me just go through some of these. The first thing about the Blessed Virgin Mary from Scripture is that she is virgin. From Matthew 1.23 and Luke 1.27. Matthew 1.23 20 and 23 says, That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And from Luke, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. And hence, she is not just to us, not just Mary. She's the Virgin Mary. Even the Muslims believe this, although they don't believe the same idea, that a miraculous conception like we believe it. They believe in something else. But it's still miraculous, and they still call her the Virgin Mary. The Virgin Mary is what we call her, not just Mary. She's just not a person, just, or she's not just a person, just one of many. Or an accident, you know. I, I remember hearing some modern theologians say in sermons, we have to wonder how many women turned God down before she accepted him. That's absolute nonsense. God is all-knowing, didn't play games like that. He knew who would respond. And so this says something about her. She is virgin, and she bore, what she bore was miraculous, and happened in a divine way. Well, the Protestant scholar, and I say this with emphasis, the Protestant scholar Reginald Fuller says, and I didn't quite, I'm not so up on the language 
that I understand it all, but he says that the term virgin here means, and I quote him, the door is shut. And hence, she was virgin after that. And if you look at the Orthodox tradition, the story is, and you can follow this story in a document, you can see it online, called Pro-Evangelion of James. So there are a couple of weird things in there, but all in all, it, it lays out the picture of what the church holds about this whole con conception. And in fact, you can actually <coughs> insert the gospel accounts of Matthew and Luke into it and, go, and find a context, a broader context for it. But in, if you notice all the movies show Joseph is a young guy, and he marries Mary because he's madly in love. And so, but then, then she conceives miraculously. According to the tradition of the church, Joseph was a widower with children, and he was older, and the temple priests had Mary in the temple, and they wanted someone to, she needed to leave the temple when she reached a certain age, and they, had, they wanted someone who could take care of her, and they found Joseph and took him and knew because he was older, and he also wouldn't try to, to engage in sexual intercourse with her. So they gave her to him or assigned her to him. Boy, I tell you, it broadens the story when you walk with Joseph. What do I do here? <laughs> you know, what do I do? Uh, and so they assigned her to him, uh, and she, she, hence she's called in the church ever-virgin. When it talks about Jesus' brothers, the Hebrew word also can mean cousins or relations, blood relations. And a, bi a biological or, or a non-biological, even a stepbrother or sibling was considered real. I mean, I've just been reading lately about the Roman Empire, and you know, all these Roman emperors who would adopt somebody and make him his adopted son so they could pass on the emperorship to him. Uh, and do it legitimately. The whole Roman society was like this. And the Greek society in, in Alexandria, Egypt was like this. That's the way they saw reality. And so was the Hebrew society. So those were her step-siblings. I put that text on John 19, 25, 27, because that's where Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he says to John, and he says to Mary, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. Well, some people say, well, that's, you know, he's, he's, he's giving, giving John to take care of Mary. Well, what happened if those siblings mentioned in the Gospels are Jesus' blood relatives? Their responsibility, according to the Torah, which all of them as Jews would understand, was to take care of the siblings so, or the mother or the parents. They would have taken care of them. But what if they weren't? So, in any case... The church calls her not just virgin, but ever virgin. And we often say, we say, primarily in the Eastern Rite, but we say it in the Western Rite sometimes, Blessed Mary, ever virgin. Now I'm telling you this because, not just because it starts with what New Testament involves, but also because there's a new popular translation of, that says, Ever blessed Virgin Mary. That is not the same thing. Ever-blessed Virgin Mary. It's not the same thing. Sounds like it. If we're not listening, we might think it is. But it's not. Blessed, the, the, blessed Mary, ever-virgin. So when you read about someone who says she's ever-virgin, you read it in the liturgies, you're going to, if you react to it, just you understand what the church is saying. She's ever-virgin. Secondly, 
from Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. We call her Theotokos, which means birth giver of God. When it says bearer of God, it means bearer in terms of birth giving of God. Yeah, she bore God in her womb, but she gave birth to God from her womb. And so we call her Theotokos to emphasize that. And it's not that God in his internal nature was born of her and came into being through her. That would mean he's created and created after we. So we less, I mean, after human beings and so less than humans. But instead, she, she gave birth, she carried in her womb and gave birth to God incarnate. That's what she bore in her womb. That's what scripture tells us. And hence, it doesn't use the word Theotokos, but the concept is there, if you understand the concept. Well, then it says in Luke, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Highly favored. Highly favored. And if you read the footnote in the Orthodox Study Bible, it says some translations say full of grace. The Latin translations. Because that's what highly favored means. Full of grace, not lacking. See, sin in orthodoxy is a lacking of the fullness of grace or righteousness. And hence, since God is his grace, a lacking of God's presence in us. Hail Mary, full of grace. Hail, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And so we call her, we use the, the, from the Latin, Immaculata, Immaculate. Now, that's different from the Immaculate Conception, which is a, Ro a late Roman Catholic, I say late 19th century Roman Catholic doctrine. We don't hold that in orthodoxy, the Immaculate Conception, but we do use the word Immaculate. But to emphasize what is said in Luke 1.28, full of grace, not lacking. Now, how is that? It's, it's a mystery. We just have to accept what the church teaches and what the New Testament tells us. Anyway, we call her that. She's an example of obedience. When she was told what she was told by the angels, she said, be it unto me according to thy word. That's what she said. I mean, how many of us would say, how many of us say to the Lord, I'll do whatever you tell me. We, we say that when we're feeling really good, but once things get rough, then we start singing a different melody, don't we? Can't you pick on somebody else? You know? yeah. Or Job, you know, come down here and answer me right now. Uh, so she's an example of obedience. And obedience is so important in the Christian life. We call her mother of God. And so where, where'd you get that mother of God stuff? Well, they'll talk us for one thing. But, but, but Luke one forty three, when she, when the Blessed Virgin hears the story, she hears that there's evidence in her cousin Elizabeth. And so another of the Marian stories is what's called the visitation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. She runs to Elizabeth to see if the story is right that the angel said that's the evidence. And when she comes to Elizabeth, Elizabeth says to her, why is it this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, Lord is a synonym in Hebrew talk for a God. In fact, when the translation of the Hebrew used the divine name, uh, when it was translated into Greek, it used Kyrios, Lord. 
So Kyrios is Yahweh. So why so easy it would be easy to say, why is it that the mother of my God should come to me? It's basically what she meant. Then she says in Luke 148 in the singing of the Magnificat, for henceforth all generations will call me blessed. All generations will call me blessed. So why are you people praising Mary? Well, because it says that we should do it. And then let me just say to you, any statement about a saint is not praise of the saint, but praise of what God has done through that individual. None of us has any talent that's worthy in and of itself. If we're here because God made us, then even the talents we have are God-given, God-infused, God-instilled. Some of us may have more than others when there are any number of reasons why. That's irrelevant. We have nothing to offer. So if we praise somebody for what, God, what the person is doing, virtuous, some virtue or something, talent or something like that that has to do with the faith, we are really praising God for, for making that happen. Ecclesiastical hymnody, and ecclesiastical hymnody starts with the Psalter. And if you look at the Psalms and analyze them, and, and sometimes they, they have a collection of these, they go back and forth between different positions, and you, sometimes you have a hard time understanding who they're talking to and about whom they're talking, whatever. But anyway, there are hymns to God, there are hymns about God, which if they're talking about God, then really they're talking to another audience, about what God has done in others, and also to others through whom God has acted. To others through whom God has acted. And that's basically what we do when we sing Marian hymns. We sing, or we pray to her, we pray them, we offer them to her, uh, because of what God has done through her and brought to us. And I'm coming back to that in a minute. And she is, so all generations will acclaim her. And so we're doing what we're told. She's also an instrument of salvation. And some of the patristic writers, even the Eastern Rite liturgies, talk about salvation through, who, through the Blessed Virgin Mary, through whom Christ came. Now, this is something I want you to consider. Both saints, Matthew and Luke, tell the Marian story first before they tell the story of Jesus and the salvific work of God incarnate. You cannot argue that without taking those sections out. That comes first. So it had to be established who is Mary before it could be established who is Jesus. Can't argue with that. So that comes first. So she's the instrument of the message of salvation. And salvation was in her womb. So, in a sense, we could say we owe her, <laughs> in a sense. And so the church, the tradition of the church would tell us that Mariology, then, what we say about Mary, all these things are necessary, is Christology. Because if we don't believe that, then we don't believe Christ was God. And if we don't believe that Christ was God, then we aren't saved, as St. Paul said, and we're the worst of fools for believing this stupid story and going through all this ritual like this. Stupid people. 
Now, the Old Testament has some things to say too. One is in Psalm 45. Now, that's in the, the, the Western version. So I think, as I said, I think it's Psalm 44 in the Eastern, right? In the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's a psalm of a wedding, of, of a, a king's wedding. And the king is present at the wedding of his, is actually the wedding of his son, of the prince, the prince's wedding. And apparently there's a psalm written at some, during the, the wedding of some prince of ancient Israel or Judea. And if you look at the pack very carefully, you have the king observing the wedding of the son, the prince, and the bride. And the bride. And who's, who's the bride of Christ? The church, right? Okay, so we're reading that with that assumption. And all of a sudden we notice that beside the king stands the queen, a fourth character in the story. Now, who is she? Where'd she come from? I mean, if the church is the bride, then the queen is somebody else. And hence we call Mary the bride of God, even though the church is also the bride of God. But Mary's the first in the church. She's also called Queen of Heaven, Revelation 12, 1 to 2. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Some would say it refers only to the Blessed Virgin Mary, and some would say it refers only to the church. But in fact, both are true, because she is in the church. She's the first Christian, as Father Peter Gilquist once pointed out. <laughs> it's the first one to have, have, to have Christ come into her. So she's the first Christian. So it really refers to both. She's queen of heaven, and that's what we call her. She's also intercessor in John 2, 5, the wedding of Canaan in, in Galilee, the story you know and have heard where 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 they run out of the wine and, and they say, what do we do? We're running out of wine. The party's too big and it's too festive. And, and he says, go fill those jars. And they miraculously turn into wine. But anyway, they come to her first and she says, do as he tells you. So what we've established from this is that she is intercessor. Even in this life, she was intercessor. Does she change when she goes to heaven? If anything, she becomes more of an intercessor. The virtues, the godly things that are given to us become enhanced in paradise, not lessened. So she is intercessor. So in answer to the question, the Bible tells us this about her. Her conception is miraculous. By linguistic implication, she is ever virgin, theotokos, immaculate mother of God, and all will bless her and will praise her or praise God acting through her when we praise her. Remember that when we have a Marian feast and we sing some of those hymns, it sounds like we're, we're praising the Blessed Virgin Mary in and of herself. It's because of the context. In the same way that someone might say, well, I walk up to one another and, and say, I want to thank you for what you said <laughs> to me the other day when I was having a rough time. And you know, we're saying, what did I say? You know, I just... Uh, thank God that you, God came through in that moment and you got something out of it. So, hello, that's what we're talking about. But she's worthy of it. 
She's the bride of God is in the church, and she's the queen of heaven, and she's the queen of all those in heaven, and she's the intercessor. This is all biblical. Therefore, it's also apostolic and of the tradition, and the tradition sees it, even when those who have divorced themselves from the tradition don't see it. It's what we believe and hold to be true and what is expected of us to believe. So remember, Mariology is Christology. Mariology is anthropology. So when we start talking about how we're supposed to be as human beings, that's it, Christian anthropology, we have to remember Mariology and Christology. We have to remember soteriology. What is salvation? What does this say about salvation? We have to remember theology. What does it say about God? What does it tell us about the way God wants to work with us? And lastly, it's also ecclesiology, the operation of the church, Mary first. And we participating in what she represents. See, she's up there again because God has called all of us to be right there, to be the, the vehicles through which God manifests himself in creation. That's the way it was intended in the beginning in Eden. And we have failed. And if we are here, it's so that we can change that in us as individuals. And so it's really an icon of Mary up there holding Christ in her lap. By the way, that's also called the throne of God. In one of the Western Rite litanies to the Blessed Virgin Mary, she's called throne. This is God sitting on his throne. Us, you, me, all of us. And he's saying, welcome home. <laughs> wow, that's, that's pretty nice. It's also a pretty darn big order. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I can't live up to it. So he's going to have to do something <laughs> to make it work. And he already has and keeps doing it. Anyway, the next time we'll talk about icons and images and why. Yes, sir. I Well, in the tradition of the church, she was always very special, and that's why she was I mean, very... In, she was taken, according to the story of Joachim and Anna, she was so special that she was taken to the temple at the age of three and turned over to the temple authorities. And so she spent her life until she... until about age 14, attached to the temple. Uh, and there were 
there were young ladies who were attached to the temple in those days. We don't read about them very much. Judaism plays that concept down, but it was there, and that's part of that tradition. So she was attached to the temple because of that sanctity. Uh, that's partly why she was turned over by her parents to the church, to the, to the temple. Uh, so she would have had some deep, deep piety and understood a number of things that we don't understand. And, and so when, those, when that language is used, I think it partly uh, is reference to her contemplating it, contemplating the depth of it. I mean, the fact of the matter is, no matter how much we know about this stuff, we all know. <laughs> and we do, I mean, I, I have no doubts. I know that Christ is God incarnate and has saved me or is saving me. Well, I don't understand the magnitude of it. So That's where she's so much like us. Yeah. Another way she's like us. Gary, she knew because the angel, the message through the angel was, this is who you will bear. She knew from that moment who she would bear. So she knew who he was. And she would grow to know who he was. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the knowledge was there. And the growth, the, again, she's, she is, a mystery is unfolding and filling for her throughout her whole life, just as it should for us, about who Christ is and all that he would do. Image and likeness. Image is created in the image of God. Likeness is that ability to grow into that. So could it have been um, just a momentary lack of faith for her, or a momentary doubt? No, she didn't have lack of faith. Yeah, but She's out there, you know, wanting him to come out to them because they're thinking he might be off his rocker. Mm -hmm. you know. They might be thinking that. I would, if I would advise you to take what the church teaches and don't don't question it. What we what we're finding is that it's right, and so. And there, there are a lot of questions. I do, do question in terms of study it, <laughs> but not to, oh, my golly, I don't buy that. And so we get rid of those icons of Mary in that church because of that. <laughs> uh, you were next. <laughs> How did God reveal to the human that they were going to have Mary? Into the story, beyond the year. And they, they were being in, in of rabbinism at the time. To have children was sin and the punishment of God for sin. So if one was barren, so to speak, then one, they had to be because one had some un, unconfessed, unacknowledged sin involved in one's life. And so the story goes that Jochen went to make sacrifices and he was turned away by the temple authorities uh, for that very reason. Uh, you got sins that you haven't dealt with and you're unclean, so go away. So he was depressed and he went back and told Anna and she, he went out into the wilderness to pray and contemplate what to do next and she stayed home and in the, while they were separated in, those, in that context, he had a vision of an angel who spoke to him about what was going to happen and she had a, the, the like vision at the same time. And when they came back together, they compared notes and so, oh, and then they conceived naturally. What point did they come to understand what Mary was going to do? What Mary was going to do? You know, I don't think it, I don't know that the tradition talks about that. She was given over to the temple, partly because 
Anna had said she had made a vow to God, much like Hannah did in Samuel's story. It seems to me that part of the, the, what the angel gave them, if I remember the tradition correctly, that he at least gave them who she, she would be and who she would bear. Maybe not the fullness, but yeah. at least that, if I remember correctly. Okay. <laughs> I was, was going to add to Gary's point, one thing that always strikes me about Mary is, like, obviously she knew... I mean, she was told up front that, you know, you're going to conceive and it's not going to be under normal circumstances. So she already knew, but so, so she had all that faith, she had all that understanding, but she watched her son, you know, be killed in front of her. I mean, and he suffered terribly. And what parent, you know, doesn't matter how faithful wouldn't want to, you know, God, take, let that happen to me instead. I mean, and so I, I think that I think that although she understood what was happening, she didn't understand. You know, like she had faith and she knew that this was God's will. And I think that's just like the perfect example for all of us. It's like, we don't know why some of the things that are happening happen around us, but we know it's God's will and we have to let it happen. So. Well, I mean, again, image and likeness. We, we are created and we're given this information uh, and then... We grow into it. So it's a both-and situation. I think we have to be really careful when we speculate on this kind of stuff. Because <laughs> our speculation is faulty. Yes, sir? Do you, here's a question of language. Do you think St. Luke was being intentional when he's writing his first chapter and he says, you know, the angel comes and says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And it's the same word that's used in the Torah in Exodus when the presence of the glory of God comes and settles on the tabernacle, I think, in, in the Jesus. But the Greek is the same, the same bird in Genesis. Did he, did he, was he aware of that terminology? That yeah, I, was that intentional, like he's hearkening back to I, I can't say, but that's one of the magnet, that's one of the things about Scripture is that it has those qualities in it. And, uh, you know, it's like when we were talking last time about the numerical <coughs> value of biblical words. Uh, I don't think that a lot of the words were chosen with numerical value in mind, but it's another level of scripture that's there, and one can glean all kinds of things from it. Yes, sir. Uh, another question about Joachim and Anna. Did, does the church teach at all that they got to see Jesus born? Were no, it, it does not say. It does not say. Remember, they were very old when they had. Oh, that's yeah. true. That's true. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Um, I wanted to ask if you would speak to the assumption of Mary, um, because I was just, I knew, we celebrate that here, but with all that's going on in Israel, there's been something about her tomb, the tomb is empty, and just, I just thought maybe if you have any insight. Well, I haven't read anything about her tomb, but. Uh, well, uh, I don't know if it's an Orthodox. Yeah, I don't think it is, because Orthodoxy holds that she, she died. Uh, and she was buried, and her body was assumed into heaven. So that used to be the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, but it got challenged beginning, I think, in the 19th century. And so now, the, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the official teaching is it's, it's something if you can believe in that or you can believe that she didn't die and was just assumed into heaven. But that is not what we mean even in the Western Rite. Now, the Eastern Rite calls it the Dormition, the falling asleep of the Mother of God. 
that, that emphasis on the on the death. We call it, in the Western Rite, we call it the assumption, uh, which means that it's two parts of the same thing. She dies and her body is assumed into heaven uh, because of the sanctity of her body. So, um, yes, sir. I had a question about in the Old Testament, like in I think it's Isaiah or Jeremiah. They speak of the queen of heaven, but it's a different queen of heaven that they're talking about. Yeah. Is that, could that be a big crawl in, the, in their feet, the Jews, to, to try and put together that plus the queen of heaven in Revelation? Probably. It, it, that? it could be. The queen of, queen of heaven as a title was used for Astarte yeah. uh, in the ancient Semitic pantheon or one of the ancient Semitic pantheons. She was the consort of Baal. Uh, however, um, <coughs> there is a line in one of the prophets, I don't know which one it is, but Baal means husband, basically. Uh, and there's one line, it's one line where, where, where the prophet says something to, speaking on behalf of God, says, you claim that you want Baal, but I am your Baal. <laughs> so the real thing, uh, and it may be that the concept of the, their God there is also included in that. I don't know. Queen of Heaven. Uh, I remember one time, I, one, in the old lectionary that we used to use in the Western Rite, there was an English lectionary we used for a while. It had one of those texts from, the, from one of the king's books with the Queen of Heaven and the condemnation of the Queen of Heaven. They were talking about Astarte in the, in the cult of Baal. Right. Because the people of Israel got confused many times and, and fell into worshiping the way the society around them said should do it. So in understanding God the way the society said to do it, one of the things we are not to do because it separates us from God. So they got into Baal and Astarte. So they called her Queen of Heaven. That's what the, the, the Semites called her, the non-Jewish Semites called her, the Queen of Heaven. So that lectionary lesson came up and it condemned the, this thing. And then there was this guy that day who came to Vespers. It was a Vespers reading. And he had, he had just got, he had been in college and just studied, uh, I don't know if he was studying religions or Judaism or what, but he came to Vespers. And we had that lesson in the Marian Antiphon immediately after, oh, queen of heaven, you know. <laughs> I thought he's totally going to misunderstand. Uh, and actually, he didn't. And he came up to me afterwards. He said, this is the most, most like Judaism of anything I've ever seen, uh, which I had concluded, too, after my conversion. But anyway, I just want to tell you, they can be misunderstood. <laughs> yes, sir. This is just kind of, so I'll know what to say when someone asks me. Uh, in the Bible, when it says that Joseph didn't know her until she had Jesus, mm -hmm. what exactly does that mean? That means the word until can, can mean at all, or just the way, we, I'm trying to think, can you remember some of the examples of that, the ways you, that word, it's defined in some of the, some of the books. It's a idiom, right? And it's yeah, yeah, until this point yeah, yeah, yeah. we think of it as, as up to this point in time, and, but and it, it yeah, we would assume it happened, and and when he's and, and in the way it was used, the argument is that it was never. That's the way it was understood early on in the life of the church. That it not it didn't have that qualification to it. That up to this point, until means. Okay, so it was a translation based on. It's a, on fault, it's a fault of our limited English translation, but also our English interpretation of the word until. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very different thing, and you can. By the way, you can. I don't, 
it's okay to Google things from time to time. Watch what you read. Yeah. And if you Google that, you'll find many orthodox answers to that. They'll give you a full description okay. on what that word came from and what it really means, which is what he's describing. To you. I will. Yeah, that one gets. That's a that's yeah, a often answer asked well, questions up mm -hmm. to and beyond. Yeah. I'm a big fan of like defending the faith. Yeah. So yeah. I like to know this stuff. Well, just remember, just remember that that we can't really argue this stuff with people outside the church. I mean, it's hard enough for us in here getting filled with this grace to understand this stuff. So think how it is for somebody outside the context of the church. It's hard. Yes, sir. Well, we're talking about English. There's a, a couple of English words that we're using to describe her that we're using very precisely and correctly, but the general connotation of them is erroneous. Queen, for example, we use it. I mean, we we've heard it referred to as the Queen Mother in the in the Hebraic tradition. Yet, to most people today, Queen is one who rules over all, and she does not rule over God. She may rule it. She rules over the rest of heaven, but she does not rule over God. Mother, being the other, over the last two hundred years, Mother has come to take on an authoritative connotation in English, and yet, as Mother of God, again. She does not have authority over God. She has a special role, but it's not authoritative. So in English, we're constantly, well, in any language, when you're talking about translations, but in English, we're constantly grappling with different understandings of words, and we've got to get very precise to have the correct understanding. That's, and that's why in the first several councils of the church, they were grappling with language, whether it adequately defined what the church had received. Uh, and things like homoousios, one substance with the father, uh, hypostasis, uh, were, had to be defined and qualified. And the church was actually using those words differently than society did, and that was part of the problem. Uh, so you have a number of things like that. Remembrance in our English language, anamnesis, to make, to bring something from the past and the chronological past into the present. We have no English word for that, so the best we can do is remember. <laughs> See, now if we break it down and say re-slash-member, that's closer. But that's not the way we look at it. So we remember, oh yeah, I just remember that Jesus died for me. So that's all the Eucharist is. It's not an omnesis, it's a remembering that Jesus died for me. Well, no wonder it people don't do it more than four times a year or even less. Uh, you don't need to. If you all have to do is remember, you can remember it without doing the service. It's a lot easier, too, and a lot shorter. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yes, whenever you have translations, whenever we have translations, we have linguistic problems. But the only op option to that is for all of you to learn Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. So, to remember would be to build it or put it together, so remember is to rebuild it and put it together. Right, right. Yeah. It's like yeah. you represent. We think of, oh, this symbolizes something, but it's to make something. Yeah, represent. represent is a good yeah. represent. Or, the, or represent. the word recall. Recall. Call recall can mean to bring it back to mind. Or to think about a recall of a car that needs repaired, you bring it <laughs> back. Physically. Much like that word you said, anamnesis. You know, the exact opposite of that word we use all the time for someone that bonks their head and can't remember anything, we call it amnesia. That comes from the opposite of that word, which means 
Nothing is in the present. I lose what's in the present. The other one makes it fully present in the now. It's it's he. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say, I know we were talking about um, uh, explaining and defending and everything. And I, I, I kind of reassure myself that the way I've always understood is that with a lot of things, the church has been very outspoken, having councils, that kind of thing, you know, strong definitions, strong defenses. But all the, uh, the way I understand it is from, from the earliest times, everything about Mary was kind of held more close. It's more like, this is, this is just, this is something for us. <laughs> that, um, that uh, you know, it's, yeah, people are, people are going to think things they're not going to understand. Um, but this is, you know, this is more like, uh, you know, she, she was the first Christian to have murdered the, you know, the first group, then, you know, everything was, you know, it would be like, a, you know, if one of us, you know, what happens if one of us um, passes away, is assumed, you know, like, you know, this is what they were thinking, it was, it was, she was, she was one of them, she was above them, like you were talking about, um, but also, yeah, they were, she, she was like them, and, uh, so it was, it, um, you know, it, I, I always, Just understanding that the church was uh, held the things about Mary more as like a personal, like a closer um, set of set of beliefs. Uh, but it's what's called dogma. That is, their their beliefs that are necessary. That are necessary, and that too is a New Testament concept. If you look in Acts 15, the the, the first council of the church where they decided whether people needed to join Judaism before they could become Christians. Uh, the council rule on it, and they send a letter out to the, all the churches, and it said, for observance, and uses the word dogmata, from which we get the word dogma. So it's necessary. And yeah, but there are things, your point is, is, is good, because there are things, we're talking about mysteries. We're talking about, we must keep this in mind. We, we can't go out there and fight with people. <laughs> You see, we can't. There's a whole world of understanding because it's otherworldly that comes to us when we come into the church, really come into this. Uh, and, we, and, and, and if we're struggling with understanding it, uh, think about what people outside are, as I've already mentioned. So, so we, open, we're, we work to open ourselves to it. And this is the point of the church. These are the things to believe to open us to God. And we want to stay on this task so that we can be open. I mean, how much do we have to learn about what's going on? Every Sunday, there are new things that pop up that go on in the liturgy. And I just want, hey, wait, stop, stop. <laughs> Let me just show you this. You know, it, it, you're probably thinking the same thing. You know, we probably if we put it all together. We might, might understand. Uh, Father, what do we say? We say that about the mysteries. Yeah. Right before we, we commune. What, what the exact verbiage of it? I'm, I'm yeah, I, I, I will not speak of thy mysteries. To, I will not speak of thy mysteries to thine enemies. This is what we're talking about. Yeah, that's the concept. If you ever wondered why we're saying that, that's what we're saying. But we want, we want to understand what those who have gone before us have have found out, Absolutely. rather than do it ourselves. That is not orthodox, and we won't wind up anywhere. I was telling Father Mark, I read and I'm rereading a book by one of my favorite writers, uh, Metropolitan Herathius Vlachos, uh, 
Uh, and he, he's, it's, it's called a night on, in the, a night in the, holy, on the holy mountain, meaning Athos. And the interesting thing is he, he's interviewing an abbot from Mount Athos, and he doesn't say who the abbot is, but in a later book, I've read all of his books, and so in a later book he admits that it was St. Sophroni. So you have one of the best writers in Orthodoxy today, Herathius Vlachos, talking to a saint about something. And he said, St. Sophroni, or the, the abbot, whoever it was, St. Sophroni, can you, you hear it from me? Uh, I'm just, um, anyway, said, said this, faith without works is an illusion. Works without faith is idolatry. We want to come to the fullness of that. And Marian doctrine is one of the ways in which we do. That's what we have found to be true. Does it make us Mariolatrous? means we see a different reality. We participate in a different reality. And we want to as we're drawn into the mystery of God. Anyway, we'll see more about this the next time when we talk about icons and images.